sermon this morning is Friendship with the World, and our passage is James 4, 1 through 5. We'll actually read just the very beginning of verse 6 in just a few minutes, and this is the 15th sermon in a series in this important letter of James. And I want to begin this morning with a story. Two men were living in the jungle. One of the men, uh, sadly, both men died on the same day. One of the men died on the way home from a hike because he was horribly mauled and attacked by a tiger. The other man died that night when he slept, having been bitten by a deadly spider. Now, the mode of both men's deaths were very different. In fact, looking at the second man, you might not have immediately realized that he was dead. He was lying peaceful in his bed. But the outcome for both men was the same. While the second man only died by a spider bite, he was still dead. Now, this little parable is a story about sin. In this story, there are two ways to sin. There's a loud, graphic, violent way that's obvious to all. And there's a quiet, subtle, secret way, which is obvious only to a few. But in the parable, both ways of sinning end up with the same result, death. And the moral of the story, or the lesson, is that whether you're a spider sinner or a tiger sinner, you're still dead in your sins. All sin, you see, is hateful and grievous to God, whether it is a spider kind of sin or a tiger kind of sin, whether it's gross, obvious, or sneaking and subtle. Our text this morning deals with the sin of anger or quarreling, battling, striving, and fighting in the church and in Christian families. And as with the parable, there are two ways to fight or quarrel or war against one another. Some of us battle in a spider kind of way, quiet and subtle, even secretive. Others battle in a loud and obnoxious and gross and violent manner like a tiger. But both kinds of fighting, as the parable, are equally sinful. And James has already warned us about such things. When it comes to our anger, he says we must be quick to listen and slow to speak and become angry. And the explanation is very important in James 1.19. He says, for the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The goal, therefore, for James is working out the righteousness of God in our lives. It's living out the kind of life that God wants us to live So whether your wrath or anger is of the quiet, spider variety, or the loud tiger kind, according to James in our passage this morning, these are just different kinds of sin and different expressions of the same underlying sin of friendship with the world. So what is friendship with the world? And what does James want to teach you about it? And what's the solution to this problem of friendship with the world. These are the questions that our passage answers for us this morning, and these are my points for this morning's message. Let's give our attention 
to the reading of Scripture, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then let's begin with prayer. This is the Scripture reading this morning from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? So far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set before us this morning a clear picture of the kind of friend that you desire us to be, not friendship, friends with or friendly with the world, but friends with you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning to know what it means to be a friend of the world and what you want us to learn about this danger and what the solution is. So may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and questions, reflections of each one of our hearts, may they be pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the first question then is, what actually is friendship with the world? The answer to this first question is this. Friendship with the world is your tendency to sin by having divided loyalties. I'll repeat that. Friendship with the world is your tendency to sin by having divided loyalties. I can see this in three places, three important places in James. First of all, in our passage in verse 4, it says, you adulterous people, James 4.4. And in my Bible, there's a footnote, number 6, that says, you adulteresses. In a marriage relationship, adultery is defined as going outside the boundaries of a lawful, romantic, or physically intimate relationship with your spouse. So in marriage, God defines marriage as one man, one woman for life. That shouldn't be controversial. It's right there in the scriptures. But in a, in a society where culture is running faster than a raging river, the standards are constantly changing. And it's important that as Christians we and that as people that you hear someone saying the standard hasn't changed. So adultery is, is, is going outside the, the marriage bond. By the way, you can also commit adultery if you're not married because adultery circumscribes marriage privileges to be only participated in marriage. So that's what adultery is. It's the seventh commandment in the list of ten. And James is calling the readers, he's calling us 
adulterers, adulterous people, adulteresses specifically. So if in a marriage relationship, adultery is going outside the marriage bond, which seals the bodies, monies, money, affection, devotion of one man to one woman for life. Going outside these boundaries, I say, and sharing your love or marital friendship with someone else, if that's adultery, then to be an adulterer with God is to do the same thing. The, devo- the devotion, the loyalty, the love, the money, the time, the affection, the commitment. When you share that which belongs to God with someone else or something else, you are an adulteress, James is saying. You are friends with the world because your loyalties are now divided. Part of your affection is going to the Lord and part is going to someone else. So you see, friendship with the world is your tendency to sin by having divided loyalties in your walk with God. Second example is in the previous chapter, actually in chapter 2. This isn't the first time James has raised the topic of friendship. Earlier in James 2, when talking about the faith of Abraham, James mentions the idea of friendship. Look at James 2, verse 23. Actually, starting at James 2:21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And here it is. And he was called the friend of God. The friend of God. In this passage describing the faith of Abraham, James suggests that Abraham's offering up Isaac on the altar is evidence that he was fully devoted to God. And what a beautiful picture. What a challenging picture. A model for us. Full devotion, even to the point that Abraham had to believe that the one heir that God promised to bring, out, bring, bring about the promise to the nations, which is Isaac, that if he were to offer up Isaac on the altar, God would have to somehow perform a miracle and essentially bring back Isaac from the dead. But he trusted God to keep his word. And he was a friend of God in his devotion, and in his loyalty. You see, faith, we're told, was active in Abraham's life along with his works, and faith was made perfect or mature or complete by his works so that the scripture was fulfilled when Abraham was declared to be righteous in Genesis 15. That declaration was shown to be true because of Abraham's living faith in Genesis 22. He was a friend of God. What can you learn about friendship for the world from this passage? Well, friendship with the world is disobedient to God, unlike Abraham, who was obedient. Friendship with the world is not completed by works. You might make a a profession or uh, you might start out that way, but you remain perpetually immature and a child in your faith in an unhealthy manner. Friendship with the world is devoted to someone else alongside or instead of God, unlike Abraham, who had no other devotion besides God, not even his son. If you look back at our text in James chapter 4, 
skipping ahead a few verses to next week, it says in verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the third thing that we see about friendship with the world is that it is a double-minded man. Someone who's friends with the world is a, is a man or a woman of two minds. We've already been exposed to this in James chapter 1 where it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him or her ask God who is gracious and generous and willing to give to anyone who asks and it will be given to him. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And James describes this person as a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. So the person who lacks wisdom is someone who, when asking God, lacks faith to believe that God can provide. Now, when I preached on this passage several weeks ago, I made the point, and it bears repeating, lacking faith or having doubts doesn't simply mean you have questions or you struggle. It means your loyalties are divided. Like a wave of the sea that's blown by the wind will will move this way one moment and then move this way the next moment. The double-minded person is committed in one moment to God and in the next moment to himself or herself or some other thing. So a double-minded man, James tells us in verse 8 of chapter 1, should not expect to receive anything from God. It's amazing to have divided loyalties, to be friends with the world, means God will not answer your prayers. So we'll return to this in just a few minutes. But apparently there's something about the divided loyalties that actually closes the ears of God to our prayers. I'm reminded, speaking of uh, double-minded, I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of building your house upon the rock or upon the sand. You know how this goes. It says, the man who builds his house upon the rock, the rains come and the winds blow. I sort of hear James sort of echoing this parable of his older brother. But the house that's built on the rock stands firm. But the house that's built on the sand is a person of divided loyalties. You're friends with God, you're friends with the world, not on the singularly solid foundation of Christ. See, the difference isn't that one person who's friends with God has no problems and the person who's friends with the world has all the trials. The difference is that both individuals, both houses, both, are, both people experience the winds and the waves of trials. But the one has God as a constant companion and the other is divided. Okay, now we see what friendship with the world is. It is sin. It is indicative of having divided loyalties, and it's like spiritual adultery. It's also the opposite of friendship with God because your affections are set on two different things, God and someone or something else. And it's defiling. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're impure when we're friends with the world and divided in this way. It's defiling. 
But what does our passage specifically want us to learn about being friends with the world? I've kind of jumped in in the middle. Let's take a look again at James 4. So the middle, which is where we've concentrated so far in the message, is in chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But what is the specific occasion? What are we to learn here specifically about being friends with the world? The answer is in the first verse. Take a look at what our text says. It's a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Our passage specifically teaches us that friendship with the world results in fighting and warring and battling and conflict. Worldliness results in division. Your divided loyalties within your own life results in division throughout your life in your relationships in the Christian community, whether that be your family or the church. Well, what do we need to learn then about fighting specifically since that's the context? Our passage tells us, first of all, that war is out of place in the Christian church. War is out of place in the church. Wars, battles, fights in the Bible are actually quite a common topic. In the New Testament, our specific word for fighting actually occurs 25 times. And most of these occurrences are references to actual war. They're especially common in the book of Revelation, in which we, are, we read about or we find described the battle between the Lamb and the enemy of God, the adversary, the devil. We find a battle between the Lamb and the saints, the holy ones, God's people, and the enemies of God, vividly described. Along these same lines, the Apostle Paul talks about battles and spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians. And also in First and Second Corinthians, one of my favorites is Second Corinthians chapter 10, where we read, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that sets itself up in opposition to God. Jesus himself describes the life of discipleship like a king who's making preparations for war. And we're to be careful in our preparations, just like a king going to battle needs to count his troops. Paul illustrates the idea of a young minister and all Christians by implication is that of a soldier who should not become entangled in civilian affairs. He needs to be dedicated to fighting the battle. The point is this, that when James calls quarrels in the congregation wars or battles or fights, it comes as a little bit of a surprise. In James chapter 1, he's asked, or chapter 4, verse 1, he's saying, why are there wars in the church? Why are there battles in the Christian community? These aren't things that are supposed to be within the church. Remember, the church is the new community of God's people, living as his first fruits in the midst of a hostile and negative world. Surely there are wars against the church. But this text says, why are there wars among you? in Christian families, and in Christian community. 
I'm not saying warfare is out of place for Christians generally. Serving in the military is a noble profession. Jesus himself, when he was asked by a soldier what the soldier should do, did not tell him to leave his military service. He told him to no longer extort and to make sure he was fair and just in his, in his occupation. So there's no question that warfare is a noble and a godly Christian calling. But wars are out of place in the church. That's what we're being told here. In the church, we should not be fighting one another. Secondly, the reason why they are out of place in the Christian community is, our text tells us, they, they spring from, or their source, is from sinful desires. Take a look at what the text says. What causes quarrels, wars, fighting, fighting, dissension among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, the ESV gives a footnote there as well. Sometimes you want to notice the footnotes in your Bible. It says Greek pleasures, so passions, pleasures. One translation called these sinful desires or evil cravings. The word here in Greek that's being translated, we get our word for hedonism. Hedonism is a lifestyle or a, a philosophy that makes the pursuit of self-seeking, self-serving pleasure my one goal in life. Where is hedonism coming from? Where is the narcissistic, self-absorbed battles and struggles that are coming? It's, it's, it's from your own sinful desires. Your passions, your pleasures are leading to division inside of you and those inner fractures, those inner struggles are leading to conflicts in the congregation. Now it says these come from the passions that are at war within you. There's another footnote here. It says, or within your members. So it's speaking of the human body within your members, in your hands, in your, in your eyes, in your ears, in your mouth, in your legs, all the parts of your body. Now we're not saying that the body itself is sinful. We're not saying that creation is evil. It's the sinful desires within your good body, within the body that God has given you. Elsewhere, Paul calls this our sinful nature. And James earlier calls this in James chapter 1, our sinful passions. He's clear in James chapter 1, let's take a look at that briefly, that the reason that we're tempted is not God, but it's our sinful desires. Look at James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In James 4, he gives three examples of how sinful desires have created conflict or war in your life and in the church. Take a look at the text. Verse 2 of chapter 4, You desire and do not have, so you murder. This is an example of not having something 
and not having something, you want it, and in wanting it, you go to any lengths to get it. Now, murder is sort of the ultimate way of taking something from someone. When you take someone's life, then everything else they have is at your disposal. I think specifically of, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a story, it's one of my favorites, it's about Naboth's vineyard and wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel conspired to steal Naboth's vineyard. Another famous example of, of how our in, inward desires, in this case sexual desires, leads to murder is the example of great King David. Now what did David do? David saw a woman who was another man's wife bathing. He should have been out to war. Our desires lead us to be places where we shouldn't be and to do things we shouldn't do. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he saw this woman, this naked woman bathing and his sinful desires took over and he tried many ways to try to get her and entice her and he succeeded. But one thing led to another and and so he was forced in the end by his own sinful logic that his sinful desires had forced upon him to cause her husband to be put to death in battle. That's the first example. We murder to get what we do not have. Second example in our text is that we do not have something and we cannot get it. Take a look. It says, you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. In this instance, there's an example of, of looking at something and unlike the first example where maybe you can get at it, in this instance, you can't get at it. It's just inaccessible to you. And so what do you do? Because of your sinful desires, you're fighting and quarreling. You're always upset with yourself or with other people. Maybe you're grouchy, maybe you're angry, hard to please. Hard to understand, hard to get along with, picky, constant criticism. Coveting, you know, is longing for something. This is the 10th commandment where God has said no, either no, not at all, or no, not at this time. Wanting what is impossible to have or what we should not have and the outcome is fighting or quarreling. And the third example is a little different. In verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's sinful desires again, same word. This example is related to corrupted prayers. This means that as a believer, you're either failing to pray to God at all, just assuming that everything that you need you can get yourself. He says you do not ask at all. Or when you finally realize, well, I, maybe I should pray about that, the only reason you're praying about it is so that you could have what you want to spend what God gives you on your lusts. So the point of these examples is to show you that the source of your quarrels is your own corrupted desires and heart. And the outcome, as we've seen, is fighting in the community. James is teaching you about wars and battles, and he wants you to teach you three lessons. First, it's out of place in the Christian community. Second, the source of the fights are your own sinful desires, which aren't submitted to God. And third, the outcome of fighting or warring in the community is God's anger or his discipline. Look at the text, verse 4. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So the first outcome of friendship with the world is that the one person, the one being that you should be able to count on for your support, comfort, blessing, encouragement, which is God, is now functionally your enemy. Now James is writing to Christians. These are children of God, believers in Jesus Christ, friends of God. But he's explaining to them the reason that they're fighting and warring in the church is they're not acting like the children of God that they are. They're actually acting like enemies of God. And the other outcome isn't just enmity with God, but in verse 3 it says the outcome is unanswered prayers. I mentioned this just a moment ago. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your motives. Here I'm, I'm seeing an echo of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and what does Jesus say? And you shall receive. And James says, you ask, and what does James say? And you don't receive. I think this is a clear reference to Jesus' promise that God hears and answers your prayers. And James is saying, God doesn't hear and answer your prayers at times. What's up with that? A bit of a sidebar, but are there times when you should expect God to not answer prayers? Now, there's the country song that goes like this. Garth Brooks, I think it is. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Are there times in our lives where God does not answer prayers? In one sense, no. God is omniscient. God hears all things. There isn't a single thing you can say or think, whether it's directed at him or someone else, that he doesn't hear it. God is also omnipotent. He's always working. There's never a time when he's not at work. So in a sense, no, God will always hear and in a sense answer every prayer. But in another sense, yes, that God hears prayers offered in sincerity, but sometimes won't answer that prayer, but will give you something better. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do, listen to this, far more abundantly than what we ask or imagine. So sometimes the reason God doesn't answer prayers is he gives us something better. And experienced Christians who have been following God for a while, not just children, but mature saints, have learned that when he gives us something better, it's not necessarily, as I was saying, I think I was saying this in, uh, in either the Bible study or the School of Discipleship this week. I said, you know, sometimes we say, God, uh, I'm looking for a Mustang, and then he gives me far more than I could ask or imagine. He gives me a Lamborghini. Well, sometimes if I pray for a Mustang, and he gives me far more than I can ask or imagine, it might be a bicycle, because that's better. I was not imagining a bicycle, and I definitely wasn't asking for a bicycle, and that's definitely more than I was asking for or imagining. It's just in the wrong direction, in my opinion. So God will perfect, is what I'm saying, the sincere, honest, humble prayers of his people. But there are about 20 or 30 instances in the Bible, and James is one of them, in which God, in, I believe, fatherly anger and discipline, will not hear your prayers. 
When he does this, he is disciplining or chastising his people who are struggling with divided loyalties. Their affections and their friendship is with the world. There are many examples in the Bible in which one of God's children is caught in a sin and he or she finds his prayers unanswered. To point out one somewhat obvious example, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Think about that. What does this say about how we should pray? No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, I don't think every prayer needs to end in sort of a robotic in Jesus' name in order for us to be fulfilling John 14, verse 6. I think it's a great practice and a good reminder. But there's no prayer that will be answered unless it goes through Christ, in Christ's name, for Christ's glory, for his sake, and by his blood. Another example, a little more obvious than maybe John 14, 6 is, is Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had hidden sin in my heart, not his word, which is what we're supposed to hide in his heart, but sin, then the Lord will not listen. And there are many other similar instances of such instruction on prayer in your Bible. So to recap, war is out of place in the Christian community. The source of war is your sinful desires, and the outcome is enmity with God and unanswered prayers. Well, what is the solution? My third point is, what is the solution to friendship with the world? What we've seen is your tendency to sin is by having divided loyalties. And what James wants to teach you about specifically is that wars are out of place in the community of faith because they proceed from divided loyalties and result in enemy with God and unanswered prayers. And the people of God are supposed to be a praying people. Jesus said, my, my house is to be a house of prayer. And perhaps the reason James is saying that we are not experiencing the power of God in our midst in him answering our prayers is because our sinful desires re result in divided loyalties. We're warring against ourselves, self versus self. And therefore, as these fractured people, we're fighting against one another in big and in little ways. So what do we do about it? Well, next week's sermon is actually an extended answer to this question. But this week's passage provides a brief solution. First of all, you need to remember the world God has made. God did not make the world filled with fighting. There was no war or striving or battles in Eden. The world that God made, man was at peace with God. There was no bloodshed. There was no jealousy. There was no sin. That world that I've just described has, 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 been, has been destroyed. But it hasn't been destroyed by God. It's been destroyed by you and me. So remember the world that God made is not a world of striving and fighting and division and disorder. The world that he made was on day one, and it was. On day two, and it was. And in a beautiful and an orderly manner, God created all that there is. We need to remember the world that God made is not a world of fighting. That's the first part of the solution. The second part of the solution is to remember who you are. 
The bad news is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're the ones that have spoiled and corrupted and polluted the world. The good news is that while you were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ has died for you. Having died and rose again from the dead by faith in Christ, you have been made a friend of God. You believe the good news that Jesus died for me, which means that you've been rescued from the domain of darkness. This is Colossians chapter 1. It's the great rescue operation. Jesus crossed into enemy lines and he took, took you as a hostage of the enemy and he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 to 14. Ephesians 5 says you were once darkness but are now light in the Lord. You are redeemed. You have been converted. You've been born again. You've been born from above. We learned this in the men's Bible study. We looked at the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, the new birth. You need to experience conversion in order to be a friend of God. You can't just keep going in the way that you were going all along. Turning from friendship of the world in conversion, you turn towards God and are following him. You're trusting in his grace to provide you with the strength that you need to not fight and quarrel, which brings me to verse 5 of our text. It's a challenging verse, a little confusing. Verse 5, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is God's solution, you see. In James 1.18, we're told that he has caused us to be born again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's given us a new nature, and I believe that that new nature is being described here in verse 5. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. We see a picture of creation here. In creation, Adam was made in the image of God and the breath of God breathed into Adam, the spirit of life, and he became alive. And then he placed Adam in a communion or fellowship with God in the garden. And so God, God loves his creation. He said it is very good. And so there's this idea here in verse 5 of James 4 of God's jealousy or God's holy righteous, sinless envy over the thing that he has made, which is you. It is not to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In fact, the scripture says that his name is jealous. Jealousy appears in one of the Ten Commandments. He says uh, that, that you shall not make for yourself graven images. Jealousy not only is his name, but God loves and favors and blesses and rewards those who are jealous for him in the discharge of your calling. So he yearns jealously for you because he yearns jealously for the new world that he's making. And he gave you his Holy Spirit. I believe there's even an allusion to the Holy Spirit in verse 5. He, he's filled us with not just the human, renewed human spirit, but with the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, we receive wisdom from above, which is first of all pure, then peaceable, and so forth. So God's solution is you are now able to grow because you have been born again. And you will grow. God will do his good work in you 
and he desires to see you flourish and thrive in the new world that he's making. It's your sinful desires that are holding you back, you see. It's that division and that worldliness. It's your love of God and your love of something else that is thwarting your growth. Well, in the beginning, I pointed out that there's two ways to die in the jungle in the parable that I told, by a spider that represents a quiet death or by a tiger, which is a loud and ugly death. But the net result is both persons are dead. Sin and fighting are like this, whether you sin or quarrel in more like a, more like a spider fashion or a tiger fashion, sort of depends on your personality and your upbringing. But it is nonetheless sin and therefore out of place in a Christian family and in the Christian church. It is to be expected in the world, but we're called to be different. We're called to be salt and light in a lost and dying world. In fact, the testimony that we give ought to be markedly different so that people want to find out why we are so strange. Why don't we fight? Why don't we insist on our rights? Why are we selfless? Why are we patient, calm, and orderly in the dealing with disagreements? Why are we peacemakers when everyone around us is making war? Well, the answer is that God has made us to be the first fruits of his new creation, and he's called us to be friends with God by producing and working the righteousness of God in our lives. Well, how can we apply this morning's message? One, I want to encourage you that not all fighting is wrong, but beware. Every time you engage in a disagreement and you attempt a constructive conversation about something that's difficult or a matter, a point of difference, your sinful desires are close at hand. As with Cain, sin is crouching at the door in every disagreement that you have. And it requires the Spirit of God and that renewed spirit within you and God's Holy Spirit power to keep sin at bay and to work in a positive peacemaking and pure manner. Our goal, secondly, should be the righteousness or rightness of God in any conflict, not just to win a point. See, that's what friends with the world do. We want my way. And then I'm actually really good at making my way sound like God's way. Maybe you do the same. It's like, you know, we need to be able to differentiate between God's righteousness and our own rightness which means we must be, again, quick to listen, not just to our consciences and to the person across the table from you, but listen to God's word. What does his word say? I think there's a warning here, too, in our passage about mixing God and the world. That's the sort of division that is a guaranteed recipe for conflict. And I want to remind you that the conflict in the church isn't the result of people who love the truth. It's the result of people who sin. And sometimes when, when a person of sensitive conscience raises a point of faithfulness in the church, they're accused of dividing the church. And that's not the case. Division in the church happens when people sin and become impure and are friends with the world. That's where division comes from. I wonder if you have a quarrel with someone, anyone this morning. I'd like you to think about that quarrel specifically. And I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Are my loyalties divided? 
Am I at war within myself? If I'm upset with someone, is it because of my sinful passions? Is it because of my sinful desires, my lusts? You know, they always go together. Sinful desires and violent conflict, they're, they're like two sides of the same coin. I want us to recommit to unity in our marriages, biblical unity in our families, in this church. And I'd love to see a greater unity in the churches of South Jersey as well, around Glassboro and Gloucester County and New Jersey, that we deal with the wisdom from above, which is first of all pure and true and right from God, and then peaceable as we work out this truth in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to close with the reading from Romans 12 about unity in the church, which speaks very well to James's concern about friendship with the world. This is Romans 12, 9 through 18, and I'll read it in closing. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, inasmuch as it depends upon you, be at peace with all. Let us pray. Lord, as we conclude in prayer this morning, we are searching our hearts for sinful passions and desires which have caused not only division within our own personality, wars in our members, self versus self, but Lord, it's caused division in our relationships Christian relationships which ought to be the source of life for us but have become the source of constant friction, heartache, and even permanent separation in some tragic cases. Lord, I know as a pastor I have committed many sins in terms of fighting over the years as a man. All of us, Lord, if we're honest, can, can reflect on our sins as well. It is my prayer, Lord, for us this morning as a church that any disunity or divisions that exist in this body would be healed by the pure peacemaking of redeemed friends of God and that we would recognize that our divisions are only a result in the matter of the body of Christ. They're only a result of our sinful passions. Sanctify your church, Lord. Pour out a spirit of unity. It is indeed like oil running down the beard 
of Aaron down upon the corners of his robe. How good it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Lord, I desire and pray just as the pastor of this church to see a revival of unity, of a leaning in to one another's lives. Lord, we're praying that we wouldn't just be friends with people that are like us, be friends with God and all of God's children. And Lord, if we see disunity that we would, and fighting and quarreling, that we would apply ourselves to that pure peacemaking and that reasonable, gentle showing of mercy and the love of righteousness, which indeed is the purpose of making us your first fruit creation. Lord, may we be better at listening in this church, hearing and loving one another, slower to speak our opinions in situations of difficulty. Lord, this is the prayer heart of, a, of an imperfect pastor who himself wars and rages with his own sinful desires. But Lord, this is your will for your church. So I pray this, Lord, may it be so. May you hear this prayer. May we repent of our sinful passions and may we receive asking. May we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.